Phase World Podcast helps independent creators live their creative and financial freedom. I'm your host, Fei Wu, and I'll be taking you through a series of interviews with creators from around the world who are living life on their own terms. Each episode is packed with tactics, nuggets you can implement, origin stories to make listening productive and enjoyable. We're not only focused on the more aspirational stories, but relatable ones as well. We also have non-interview-based mini-series releasing throughout the year to help deep dive into topics such as freelancing, marketing, even indie filmmaking that will benefit creators like you. Show notes, links, and ways to connect with the guests are available on phaseworld.com. Now, on to the show. Hi there, this is Faye from Phaseworld Media. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We've been around since 2014, believe it or not, and I'm still learning every single day. So today I welcome Moyes Jiwa to the Face World podcast. Professor Moyes is the editor-in-chief and he is Associate Dean and Professor of Health Innovation at the Melbourne Clinical School, University of Notre Dame. He's also a practicing general practitioner based in Melbourne, Australia. Moyes was introduced to me through Dr. BJ Miller. I'm really grateful. I want to bring this conversation forward and it may actually sound a little unusual, even though we have interviewed other doctors here on Face World and those episodes are popular, I am proud of because, you know, doctors are not often being interviewed. They don't really talk to us or share behind the scenes what's going on. Well, due to a lot of factors. Number one, they're very busy. And I've also come across doctors who said, Faye, I appreciate the opportunity, but I don't want to be the leading voice or I feel a little bit hesitant to try to set new standards, new rules, or, you know, teaching other doctors how to do their job. I'm really grateful that Moyes joined me in this conversation because part of his journey, the Journal of Health Design and the Art of Doctoring, both of his websites, are there to help physicians of any age, but in particular, um, new, younger physicians, even um, students in medical schools can really benefit from his teaching. And I'll say this, personally, as a creative entrepreneur, I also find there so much teaching and parallels with conversations and learnings I've had with Moyes really over the past few months of knowing him. And it's been very meaningful. The reason is when it comes to doctoring, what makes you a great doctor isn't necessarily about medicine alone. In fact, Moya was able to walk us through the journey of how he welcomes a patient, how he chooses to sit down after the patient has sat down, and being able to ask questions without interrupting the patient for 10 to 15 minutes and really have his patient engage with him on a personal level. These lessons are invaluable, and I wish we talk about it more often. I also wish that um, as a patient, as a citizen, that I get to encounter uh, this type of doctors more often. Thank you for listening, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to people from all walks of life, because what I believe in as a content creator and as a creative entrepreneur is that there's so many opportunities right around us, as opposed to limiting our reach, our learnings, with a particular cohort, a particular website or social media. What I want to do is really conduct outreach and to be able to learn from people I wouldn't even normally learn from or have access to. If you feel the same way, please let me know. You can find me anywhere on social media at FaceWorld. That's once again, FSM Frank, E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. Tell one more friend, one more colleague about this show, and I'll see you at the end of this. 
guys, this is Faith from Faith World Media. I always have a huge smile when I run this live stream. It's a little bit different than my regular routine on YouTube where I teach a lot of tech tutorials, kind of talk super fast, get to the point. Everything is five to 10 minutes, but uh, I, I love these conversations. And today I have a very special guest. I met through BJ Miller very recently, but I feel like I've known Moyes Jiva for so long. And um, we had this conversation we scheduled for 15 minutes. I think we talked for like an hour and that felt like we could go on for days. So welcome to the show, Moya. So good to have you on a Sunday night. Oh, thanks so much, Faye. It's Monday morning here in Melbourne. So, and the dreary Monday mornings. So it's very nice to be with you. Oh, likewise. My goodness. So what time is it over there? Is it like a 7.30 or something? It's 8.32. Oh, 8.30. <laughs> and do, do you feel wide awake, ready to go? Or are you a morning person? Yeah, I think generally I'm on the train by 7.30, so this is this is good. Oh, yeah, so you had your coffee, breakfast, so you're, this is not like rolling out of bed for you. Crucially, all Melburnians love to drink coffee. We've got the best coffee in the world. So yeah, I've had my coffee. I had to have it before I started. Oh, we have to talk about, I mean, I'm, I'm not a coffee expert, but it's funny that you you pointed that out because I think people from all over the world believe that their coffee is the very best. And, yeah. you know, I don't blame them. Um, but let me briefly introduce you in case it's not obvious. I mean, you're um, you're always dressed up, but yet you're one of the, I would say, one of the most approachable doctors I have ever met. Um, and I love how you introduce yourself, which is in the description for people who are hopping on right now. Please say hi, no matter where you are. I'm so glad to have you on a Sunday night. I appreciate you, whether you tune in for five, 10 minutes or the whole thing. Um, so Moya introduces himself as, I help good doctors become great doctors. I've been a clinician for more than 30 years and have multiple other roles, including professor, innovator, a publisher, and researcher. And uh, Moya's experience has taught him that uh, healthcare professionals can achieve astonishing results by looking closely at what is in their immediate sphere of influence. And uh, you'll also enjoy writing, innovating, and needless to say, we found ourselves both on YouTube. I love your content and I love how raw it is, not just you, but inviting doctors that we know, we don't know into these conversations. Um, so, so much to cover here. First, I have to say, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get to uh, coffee for sure, but tell, actually first tell me a little bit about your commute because I'm never quite sure where my doctor's friends are working these days. Uh, telemedicine or, you know, what, what's going on where you are, Moyes? So we're currently back in lockdown, which is why I'm at home. Mm -hmm. um, we've got some COVID cases in the community. We've got a lot of cases in Sydney. So this is mm -hmm. not my usual morning. My usual morning is that I work at a university. So I go, uh, I have, it's funny you should ask about my commute because I spent all day yesterday in lockdown uh, polishing my prize, which is my um, Vespa scooter. So I get on, get on my Vespa scooter, ride it to Southern Cross Station, and then from Southern Cross Station, I get the train out to, to a place called Werribee, which is where, the, uh, where my university is based. Mm -hmm. And that's a good 45-minute commute. Uh, I, I, lo I love that time because that's the time I get to, to do my other favorite thing, which is to draw I do a lot of drawing. I do a lot of portrait drawing. So I do, I sit and I do that on that. the train. <laughs> oh my goodness. You draw, you draw people on the train. 
Uh, sometimes people on the train, often not. Often I get somebody on my phone, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I draw, I draw that person. Uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. Wow, very so, mindful thing <laughs> to do. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And then you say, as a result of the recent lockdown, you are working from home uh, currently. Currently, I'm working from home. Other than when I'm in practice, so I practice again in the city of Melbourne, and that's a. Uh, 15-minute walk from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my Friday, which is which is a lovely way to spend uh, Fridays um, seeing patients. Wow. So I'm excited about this conversation for a variety of reasons. And I try to relate to my own experience. And for people who are listening, who are watching right now, most of my audience on YouTube as well as on LinkedIn elsewhere. Let's just assume most of them are uh, patients or they're not healthcare providers necessarily. And I think in recent years, especially during COVID, there's a different kind of anxiety that I've experienced going from, oh, you know, my mom had a checkup a year and a half ago. We thought it was nothing. Turned out it was something. She had something removed uh, and it was not cancerous. But that's, that whole journey, I felt like just took so much out of me. And then um, I think learning just, the, you know, kind of keeping in touch with my friends, realizing that. Uh, people have other fears surrounding, oh, if I do feel sick or not feel well, then uh, am I even capable? Or can I even go to the hospital to get prioritized? So I feel like our conversation as a result of that is very relevant to uh, give people the information or the comfort or maybe um, education uh, like you have given to other doctors to understand like how we can actually create a more human experience together. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think the pandemic was very stressful, not just for patients, but also for doctors, because mm-hmm. for many of us, we believe that the best way to see patients is face-to-face. Mm-hmm. We're very uncomfortable, many of us, with telehealth, because often you cannot make a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, supposing you called and you said, oh, I've got tummy pain. Well, I can give you advice only up to a particular point, yeah. but beyond that point, I can't examine you and I cannot make a conclusive diagnosis. So it is stressful. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's very it's been very useful to pivot to telehealth because for people with a, a long-term enduring illness, mm-hmm. it's often helpful to see that patient uh, and advise them rather than not have them in the clinic at all, um, where you know potentially they can't come in for many, many reasons, whether it's because they have uh, immunocompromised or because of the mm-hmm. rising incidence of COVID in the community, whatever happens to be. So it's a, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, fantastic for having conversations with patients, mm-hmm. not so fantastic for everything else, including making a diagnosis. Mm. It, it is so helpful and interesting to me to hear what the other side feel feels like. Because sometimes, you know, I think I don't know how much of the vulnerability, which is what I think what you're into, what you've written about on both sides to understand what the patients need um, versus what the doctors need and and are supposed to do. And I don't think we've shared a lot of conversations until literally I met you. uh, I met Vicki Jackson as a result, BJ Miller. I, I realize that it's so important for us to to share this and to not instead of assuming what works, what helps, um, but to actually be very open. Like um, I want to kind of jump right in into for people who don't know your YouTube channel, check it out. Um, 
uh, so there's you have two channels just for clarity. There's one by your name, Moyaz Jiva, and the other is the Journal of Health Design, um, which I've subscribed to both. And you um, invite invited doctors to talk about, you know, what what they should be wearing. Is it important for them to wear certain things or look a certain way when they go to work? What did you learn that from that conversation? Were you surprised by some of their answers? I was surprised and, and delighted with some of the answers because they very much resonated with what we generally, as a profession, feel about how we turn up to work. Mm-hmm. And people were surprisingly honest about the challenges that they faced and the constraints that they faced, you know, legal constraints and ethical constraints and all kinds of other constraints that didn't allow them to do what the patient felt that they they could have done because the dollars were changing hands. Mm. And so that was nice. But what was even better was to hear directly from patients and hear how much patients want a partnership with their doctors and to, to realize that we are in the end all on the same page. Mm-hmm. That's so lovely. I mean, the reason why I'm so, and one of the many reasons why I'm excited is not only, you know, I've been a patient, I've been a caregiver, all of that is uh, it delights me to know that people like yourself who are doctors, you have worked uh, right away as, as a, I think, as a primary care physician for over 30 years. Correct. Um, is that accurate? Great. Yeah. Yeah. And then for this whole time, I know this has started long before we met, but you're also very much a creator. And what I mean by that is you are a content creator, you create videos, you you write, you're also an innovator, which means you um, you challenge the, the system in a positive way of how to make it work better, how to invent and create things outside of the system, which I love because to me, you're not waiting for the health system, whether it's in Australia or North America, to change or to provide you with what you need or to finally design the, design the thing that's going to help other doctors and therefore patients. You just started designing. And I want people to hear and know this because this sounds really unusual and even unthink of among doctors. Am I exaggerating? <laughs> you know, how does yeah, it resonate? I think, with you? I think you're right in many ways that uh, some doctors are more creative than others. But I believe that all doctors are highly creative. They mm-hmm. are often frustrated creatives. Because if you think about it, getting into medical school, it's not just about your marks. It's not just about your performance in the exam, often these people are very talented in other ways. They're, mm-hmm. you know, captain of the football team or they happen to have been an actor or they happen to have been a town planner. Some of them are engineers uh, before they go into medicine. So they are very, very creative. Mm-hmm. And we often underestimate the importance of that in their lives because they bring that creativity, uh, of, you know, often in surprising ways into the practice of medicine. Mm. And can we maybe focus on you, for instance? Uh, I think you, uh, even having really met you or spent time with you, I have a feeling you will know which tea shop or coffee place to go to. I think you know how to enjoy life and how to explore kind of the hidden gems, not just in the medical world, but just life in general. So could Mm. you maybe talk to us a little bit about your origin story, perhaps what inspired you to be creative in the medical fields? Like where do you seek your inspirations and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think like many other doctors, I was a frustrated creative. And when I look back at my career, the start of my career, I think I would have loved to be an architect, for example. And I often said it as a child, I'd love to be an architect. I love to 
build things and create things. But of course, inevitably what happens is you do academically very well in if you are that way gifted, and then the pressure's on to do something where you maximize leverage that academic ability and you end up in medical school. And you end up realizing halfway through medical school that the language of science is now going to be the way in which you are going to be creative. Mm -hmm. There's there's no difference between using the language of mathematics and physics and engineering to be a creative. Uh, You're now going to use a different language, but you're also going to be a creative. And that's essentially what happened to me. I became a creative in using a language that is alien to many creatives, which is science and medicine and pathology and pharmacology and all of that. And the wonderful thing about medicine, particularly family medicine, is you can actually bring other things in, uh, sociology, psychology. You can bring a lot of design thinking. Uh, You can look at, you know, how your room is set up, how you greet patients, what you wear, whether you show the icons of your profession, whether they're on display when the patient comes into the room, how you terminate the, the conversation, how you hold that conversation what uh, tools you use in order to explain very complicated things to people mm-hmm. who happen to be ill at the time. So a lot of that requires creativity. And I guess that's what I enjoy the most about what I do. And you ask, well, you, know, you said, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that as a doctor? Well, the secret is to actually, the superpower is to give up thinking about work. So as you say, when I'm not at work, I'm really not at work. I give myself over to the drawing I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Sitting, You cannot ride a Vespa through the city of Melbourne without being mindful. <laughs> you, do, you do that and you're going to end up under a tram. So you have to be present every moment. And that's the time that these creative thoughts come to you. And then you come to your work much I wouldn't say just refreshed, but you come to work with a lot of ideas about where to from here in terms mm-hmm. of creating new solutions to problems that you were facing earlier in the week. Yeah, yeah. I can I so can relate to that. And, and um, uh, you know, I hear a little bit of an echo. I apologize. Um, so I, I think, you know, on that note, I noticed when I was working, you know, even without family or kids, I was putting my 70, 80 hours into consulting advertising um, I didn't know at the time how much it blocked my creativity. Even just my well-being wasn't wasn't there, right? And it was uh, in, incredibly difficult. And nowadays, after being a creative entrepreneur since 2016, I find myself really slowing down. Like even at a place called Trader Joe's, which is a chain here in the U.S. Um, grocery store, it's lovely. I look at succulents. I look at plants. Uh, I wanted to buy flowers. I wanted to decorate my office. As a result, people start to notice that. I mean, I literally got the guitar yesterday and started trying to remember how to play again from when I was 15. And um, this experience, uh, somehow, like you said, when you're not at work, you really fi- you got to find a way to cut through the noise of wanting to get back, trying to always trying to constantly be optimizing, trying to be creative all the time. It's just not possible. No, it isn't. And the more you force yourself to think of a solution, the more elusive that solution becomes. Mm-hmm. And the less uh, you realize that 
how powerful our brains are. Our brains are capable of finding solutions even to the most complicated problem if only you give yourself a chance to allow that uh, to come to the surface. And that's what, you know, writing a Vespa or drawing or going for a walk or talking to family, whatever it happens to be, what that's what that does for you. It's not that you're not working at the time, but you're allowing your brain to do the work and enjoying life, which is, in the end of the day, that's what, what it's all about. Yeah. So, you know, you have a smile when you talk about this. I think we can all feel how much we enjoy what you do. And I want to dive in just a little bit deeper into how you interact with your patients, because you know, as you know, um, sometimes the first few seconds can and can make a world of difference. And perhaps what I have learned in the past um, eighteen months or so is that people come to me for issues such as, say, how do we build? How do I build multiple revenue streams? How do I make more money? It will be nice if I can reduce costs. So everything is kind of I wouldn't say optional, but it's not necessarily urgent. Whereas I know sometimes maybe like an annual checkup, everything checks out, people are happy. But there are also times I know that primary care doctors are the ones who identify a potential need to look into uh, you know, certain scenarios and situations deeper. So there are pretty stress, stressful um, situations. In the U.S., you know, um, primary care doctors also look at the CAT scan and, and, and say, okay, at least over here, you collect the results, you have to interpret and help patients understand that. So how do you manage stressful situations? Do you meditate? Do you condition yourself before you turn around to say, oh man, I actually care about this person. I don't know how to deliver the news. I mean, how do you, how do you handle that? So I actually wrote about this in, in a book I wrote called The Art of Doctoring. And I talk about the importance of routines when you're consulting. So mm -hmm. the first part of the routine is that you have to be present and you force yourself to be present. So at the end of one consult, as you type in the notes, as you put that away, you have to create a routine. And the routine is you go to the sink, you wash your hands, because you're going to have to wash your hands before you see the next patient. You do that mindfully. Mm -hmm. Then when you greet them, we greet our patients in the waiting room and then bring them through, you stand in a particular place. You stand in the same place, you call that patient's name, mm -hmm. and you don't move until that patient has looked you in the eye, acknowledge that you've called them and walk towards you. And then you walk side by side with that patient into your consulting room. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, in the old days, we used to shake hands. We don't shake hands anymore because of COVID and all things like that. We're all mm -hmm. masked up, often we're gowned up. There's all kinds of, um, you know, interruptions mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. flow. But nevertheless, it works. Mm. And you never, ever sit down before the patient sits down. That's oh, critical. These are the little things that make a difference. We're not talking about spending two hours with the patient. We're talking about spending a maximum of 15 minutes with mm. the patient, as happens here in this country. And so you, when, you, when they sit down, then you move away from the computer. You must not spend the first two minutes well, I don't. Uh, I say must, but this is my routine. Yeah. I will not spend the first minute or two with the patient looking at the computer. If I haven't looked at the computer already, then that's the fact that I have not been present. I already know enough about this patient. I know what they came in for last time. I have a rough idea what medications they're on. You then look at your knees. Your knees must be pointed 
and your elbows must be pointed at the patient. If they're not, your mm. mind is somewhere else. And if it's mm. somewhere else, you are not going to get the best out of this interaction. Now, bear in mind, this isn't about the patient. This is about me. This mm. is about me enjoying what I do, getting the mm. maximum that I want to get out of this interaction. It's, it may be a fantastic experience for some of my patients, but mm -hmm. that's not the intention. The intention is for me to feel that I'm going to, to get something useful out of this interaction with this patient. And that useful thing is why I went into my profession. I went into the profession in order to be helpful. And mm -hmm. I get a lot of joy out of being helpful. Mm -hmm. I do not interrupt the patient for the first minute or so, minute, maybe minute and a half. Mm -hmm. And in that sometimes pregnant pause, I get to the truth much more quickly than if you're firing questions at the patient the first time they say, I have a cough. Yeah. And you're saying, you know, are you producing sputum? Is it green? Blah, blah, blah. All this. Have you got a temperature? Have you lost weight? If you keep going like that, you're going to go down a rabbit hole. Whereas yeah. often they tell you really what's the matter within mm. the first minute and a half. Yeah. And then you ask permission. You say, I'm now going to enter some notes onto the computer. I'm going to turn myself to the side. Is that all right? If yeah. the patient's comfortable with that, then you start to do what you have to do. And of course, I mean, I can go on about this, but you always examine the patient in some way, shape or form, whether you take their blood pressure or whether you lay a hand on their abdomen or you listen to their chest, whatever it happens to be, that's important. And then mm -hmm. when they leave, the same thing applies. You've, you're present you stand up to greet this, to, uh, to say goodbye. You walk them to the door. You don't sit down at your desk or turn your back until you shut the door and the patient has left. That's what mm. a good interaction to me looks like. Oh, man, this is so much to learn for, for anyone because we are interacting with people in ways that I guess it just kind of by default these days. There's so much that our parents can teach us where, you know, we are the average of the six, seven people around us. And that's really true. Um, this reminds me of my colleagues slash friends and clients, um, Barry Alexander and Cosmo Bono in New York. I Every time I've been to restaurants with them, and it's always the case that they greet, they go in and say hi to everybody. Sometimes they even go into the kitchen, and this is before COVID as well, um, shake hands with people, and they tip generously, not because they're millionaires or um, it's because they feel it's necessary. Now, both of them are in their 60s, I would say probably late 60s. And to me, that's a lesson learned. And guess what? We always have the best food. When we return to the same restaurant in the middle of New York City, no matter how busy, we always find a table. And it's very, very genuine. On our way out after a full meal, they do the same thing. They take the time uh, to say thank you to everyone. And you see the joy on these people's faces to be cared for to be seen and be heard, um, it, it just is incredible. That's one of my reflections. The other is being Chinese and my Chinese background has taught me a lot of things. A lot of that really is very unnatural for the U.S. So for one thing is, like you said, this was maybe moments ago, um, when we invite guests over, we are never standing inside the room, say, come in, come, you know, we're always 
going to the door and greet them. If there's an elderly person, you hold them. I know that can be a little too much. It's not that they cannot walk on their own, but you basically, you hold them, want to make them feel really at home. And like you said, you sit down after they sit down, you drink, you eat after they have been taken care of. And uh, it just kind of made me realize that when when I'm so kind of accustomed to that for so many years, and sometimes I, I drop some of the habits because, oh, you know, it feels maybe a little too Chinese. I can do that. But whenever I do it, people here, they will freak out. They'll be like, oh, is that a handwritten note? Um, did you just, you see them pause? And it's a really beautiful thing. Got to remember to do that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And it's not just about them. It's about you as well. Yeah. You are getting as much out of it. Excuse me. Yeah, nope. you're getting as much out of it as they are. You are, you are getting that feeling that you're enjoying the interaction more because mm-hmm. they they respond. People respond. Mm-hmm. Your patient yeah. smiles. You know, your patient. And for me in the clinic, the patient smiles. They they want to know your name. They're interested in you. Suddenly, the conversation seems to almost swap, and you got to go. Hang on, hang on. You're here to talk about you, and. Yeah. And you know then that you've got a powerful relationship which is going to be therapeutic Mm -hmm. and which is going to get the maximum benefit for them and for you. And at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want people to get better. That's why they come to us. Yeah, yeah. And this is so fascinating. And I must ask this question um, related to tele, uh, I guess, telehealth in general. Uh, this greeting, walking with people, really paying attention. How do you translate that over um, virtual meeting systems such as Zoom, Google Hangout? What can we do to learn more and to give people that attention that they need? Doctors to patients, but also for us creative entrepreneurs with clients, with prospects. What are your thoughts? I think the same kind of things apply. You know, if you're doing a Zoom call, and you think that once the camera's on, they can see you, that's fine, but you're focused over here and you're busy writing and you're moving and you're doing, Mm -hmm. you are losing that critical interaction with that person. Mm -hmm. And they they, then realize that you are distracted, that your mind is somewhere else. So that's the first thing is, where are your eyes focused? Mm -hmm. You know, where are your elbows pointed? Where are your knees pointed? Mm-hmm. And do you realize that, and the wonderful thing about Zoom is you can see yourself, that mm-hmm. you can see yourself looking in another direction. So that's yeah. the first thing. Yeah. And the second thing is to take the time to let that person tell their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you soon realize, because the timer's on, you can soon re- you can actually see the timer. You can, you can see how long it is before you've interrupted them. Mm-hmm. Or how long you've been speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's so beautiful. I mean, these lessons apply to everyone. For people who are watching right now, if you have any questions, please drop them in the comments wherever you are, and I will we'll pitch them to Moyes. Go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's essentially it. That you That's the first place to start. And mm-hmm. the same things apply. You ask the person what brings them to this call, and you make sure that they've had the chance to have the last word before they sign off in the mm. same way that they, you see them to the door and mm. they've decided to leave 
and yeah. you're not just shutting the door in somebody's face and those kind of things. I know there are books written about how we should interact on Zoom to maximize the output, but mm-hmm. it's still it's still some of the basics that we've been taught as doctors uh, and as good hosts apply. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I want to uh, give you the op- opportunity to talk about some of your recent projects. You have the Journal of Health Design, which is an ongoing project. Um, you also designed this prototype. I don't even know if there's a word for it to help medical students and doctors to to do better, to be more self-reflective. Could you tell us a bit abor- more about that and where, where people can learn more about your projects? Yeah, I mean, the Journal of Health Design was created as a platform to amplify the voice of patients, patient advocates in particular, and physicians. So it's an opportunity for people who don't often get to speak in scientific circles. So essentially, the journal is a scientific peer-reviewed journal. And what we often say to advocates is it's better to go to a conference or to a meeting and say, as per my paper in the Journal of Health Design, Mm -hmm. than to say, as per my blog post or as per my YouTube channel, YouTube channel is a different thing, but as per my blog post, this is what I think. It is far more powerful to be able to do that. And unfortunately, often these people, the advocates in particular, and often the physicians at the coalface mm-hmm. are excluded from publishing in peer-reviewed journals because peer-reviewed journals are designed for another purpose entirely, and that is to sell peer-reviewed mm-hmm. journals. Uh, he who pays all you know, often calls the shots. We wanted to create a platform that was free to use, free to access, and that where we could help people um, and find reasons to publish rather than reasons to reject. So mm-hmm. the journal design very much is an attempt to democratize science. The great thing about it is we've got a, an army of people behind it. So when you go on the journal, you know who's paying the cost of all of this. There are no hidden people in the background. That's the great thing about it. Mm. And how do you go about approaching other doctors or users on the website? I definitely have seen some familiar faces. And I wonder, how do you go about selecting the right voices or people who are kind of pioneers in a sense that say, I'm going to give this a shot and I want to share more with the world, my patients and the world? Yeah, I think this goes back to the the thoughts of uh, Bernadette, my wife, and Seth Godin. And they feel very much that when it comes to building a platform, you don't go about doing it by sending out blank emails. You know, you don't cold call people. Mm -hmm. So we don't cold call people. A lot of the people who come to the journal for interview or who want to publish with us come to us because somebody else has recommended them to us Mm -hmm. and they feel that they're on the same page and that's how you build a community that's how you build a niche market as it were you Mm -hmm. go with the people who you serve you you actually have to serve above all else Uh, Mm -hmm. we are in the service business we are not in we're not in business full stop we're in the we are serve we're serving this community and that community responds magnificently as you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love how you brought up the fact that, you know, Bernadette Gio is a name I've recognized for many, many years. And when we connected, you mentioned she's, you know, she's your wife. I was actually in shock because prior to that, I followed Seth Godin still today. 
all his teaching, bought all his books, read many of them more than once, daily blog posts for the past 20 years. And so I would love to know, actually, you know, uh, since I know Bernadette has been working with Seth for so long, uh, could you tell us, like, how have how has maybe Seth Godin's work influenced you? And, you know, after that, the question is, how has Bernadette's work influenced you as well? Well, in many ways, they are one and the same question because, <laughs> you know, Bernadette has been working with uh, Seth for I think a decade at least, uh, there or thereabouts, wow. maybe, maybe not as long, but it feels that way. And a lot of <laughs> what she's written about reflects his thinking. And thinking is very much that you don't co-call, you build from, the, there's a runway when you're building something. If you've got a cause, it has to be driven by passion for making a change. And mm-hmm. that's essentially where we started. We wanted this message that, we are in the business of serving people to start off the, the, the uh, you know, the momentum on this mm-hmm. particular pathway. And so that's essentially how it all pans out. If you look at how we built it, it's essentially, we hope, how Seth would have built it. One person at a time, one mm-hmm. day at a time, to the point where it then has a life of its own and takes off. Yeah, permission marketing at Purple Cow back in, I think, man, 2009. And the idea of permission marketing, that people come to you and you're genuinely servicing them as opposed to you're just there to get paid, makes a huge difference. It makes marketing so much easier. And uh, for me, one of the recent, not even an experiment, it's now the reality of running YouTube is once my channel took off, which is something that I'm like, oh, Moyes, I want to show you how to do this. I know it's possible for you. I would love for, for your channel to take off, knowing the type of authentic creator you are. And you know, now brands, now I would say a year and a half later, brands are proactively reaching out to me with a subject line. This is a paid gig. You, know, you open up the email, they know what they're talking about. There's a dollar amount and open for negotiation. And I literally... This happened a year ago, and I sat there just in awe, thinking for the first time in my life, I don't need to sell myself. I don't mm. need to elevator pitch to anybody. And that is that is incredible. So I guess I'm gonna change my question up about you and Bernadette because you know you've been married for a long time and you know you have kids together. You know, I'm uh, I'm sure like we we can go on for different episodes. I'm sure they're all doing great things. Um, because I, I heard Bernadette talk about very openly, like in these short clips of how joyful she feels as a mother to raise um, kids and to see them thrive. But at the same time, you know, you both are doing great things. I would love for you to talk about maybe the dynamics of being in a like a power couple relationship, right? And how do you inspire each other? And I, I people are probably very curious to know that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm extraordinarily lucky because I have my mentor, and my best friend uh, as my partner in life. And that makes such a difference. Mm. So, you know, the mistakes I could make are circumvented well early in the piece. I think so. <laughs> but when I, when I have the sense to listen to good advice, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. Um, but it's very much like that. We We spend most of our weekend going on long walks. So we would walk literally 5, 10, 15 kilometers. Um, And Melbourne is so walkable, it's fantastic. And a lot of the time we'll stop off for coffee three or four times in the course of that walk. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly talking about 
not in a direct way, but about how we feel about things and how things are uh, unpacking. You know, we try not to talk about the, we try not to do the managing of our jobs in at that time. A lot of the time it's much higher level conversations about why we're doing something or how we feel about it or what we could achieve uh, or what we think what we think the goal is in this particular um, project or venture. And it works really quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time it isn't to do with any of that. It's to do, as uh, Bernadette says, it's about the children. And children are a great way to take you, to ground you, because their problems are very real and they're now. And so mm-hmm. yeah. it means that you you're, you are out of that office environment. You're out of thinking about work. You are thinking about something that you both love and care about. And that is another source of our creativity. It is being a family. It is enjoying the environment we're in. And it is about um, this, you know, as you say, we've been married well over 30 years. and. Wow sharing all the memories of that and yeah you know it's 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 great well it's i i love the idea of taking long walks and clearly you both do have the privilege to do that as well you know being able to work in an environment together um not just share a home but actually sharing really sharing a life so i would encourage people who are watching this young couples especially young couples or older couples to find yourself in in those situations and be uh, just kind of make time for yourself. And it's funny that you mentioned walk because it seems so mundane. At the same time, it is the most effective way to grow with someone. Um, I often hear couples say, uh, find a, you know, find a babysitter. They have to find a fancy place to go to. They have to buy meals of a certain price. They have to go on a vacation. They have to live in a certain hotel. And then they come, they come back or they, you know, they come back, they're unhappy. And, and it's just, it's really interesting that people feel like oh, I'm doing this thing. I'm putting together this. How come it's not working? We're not happier. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it, does, does it sound familiar to you? <laughs> it sounds very familiar. And Seth talks about this a lot. He says, you know, if you're living for your two weeks of holiday, mm. you're, in, you're in trouble because essentially life isn't about the two-week holiday. It's about all, every single day, every single moment that you're on this earth and that you're able to spend time doing something that you feel is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, you know, you you might think, oh, well, you know, it's all very well. He's he's earning a fortune. He's a doctor. He's this, he's that. And she's a successful so-and-so. We don't see it that way. Uh, our, you know, without going into any of it, we don't see ourselves as wealthy particularly. We see ourselves as rich in some ways because we live in an environment where we can do things that are almost for free but are fantastic. You, know, you can walk into an op shop here. You can walk into uh, um, you know, any number of secondhand bookshops and buy mm-hmm. books for a dollar or two, which are fabulous. So, so yeah. you know, it's not as if you have to spend a fortune just to have a good time and to get out of your head, which is essentially what this is about. Yeah, exactly. Like when you're actually, we're also talking about here is if you surround yourself with the right people. And, and I want to really get deep into that. This is not just a quote that looks good on Pinterest or, or in a book. 
but I notice just how much fun I'm having with my friends, um, you know, with my mom, who's an artist, as you know. And she and I recently discovered thrift shops in which we really, you know, we're, we're not really uh, kind of in the habit to, to go into. And she would discover these little hidden gems. And we start thinking about like, if this is a necklace, you know, who wore it before, to what occasions. And like you said, things are um, things are very inexpensive. And yet you're making great use of them. It is better for the environment as opposed to buying new things constantly. Um, it's it's really powerful. Um, I also love the fact that I, <laughs> I was reading a book, I think, um, was it even This Is Marketing or that I think it's one of Seth, Seth's maybe podcast episode. He was sort of making fun of the reality that in New York City, on average, you know, upper class people are having their weddings on average is like 90,000 US dollars per wedding. And he said, if you save that money, and he did the calculation, you could take two to three friends out to dinner every single weekend at a fancy restaurant, even order drinks. And that was so eye-opening. He said, also, the more expensive the wedding, the earlier, the sooner the divorce. <laughs> I was like, so you got to be careful if you're, you know, cho choose the, the right people and creating the right environment for yourself. But um, Moyen, knowing that you're so open about these things, another area people never talk about is sort of the failures, the frustrations of being a content creator. At the end of the day, you know, from my journey to start in 2014, people immediately said, hey, I heard about your podcast. How much money are you making? And becomes this thing where like, you better have a speech ready when you go to um, holidays, family gatherings. Even my my relatives in China, you know, on my dad's side would be like, well, oh, you know, if she's not making money, I mean, what's, what's really the point? Uh, a creator, but does she have family? Does she have kids? Right. It, all of these things are so real. And yet um, I've been very lucky, lucky to kind of deflect them in a way because I've been in it for long enough. So I would love to hear your message to the content creators out there, YouTubers, podcasters, teaching people how to cook, medicine. Like what, what is your way and mindset to kind of get through the day to day and really build a, really build a creative muscles to keep going? Mm. I think the most important thing is not what, how much you're putting out there or who's looking at it, but what is the quality of what you're putting out there. If you really believe you've got something to say that's useful, that works, put it out there and people will find you. People will find you. Now, you and I met and I desperately needed your help to say, look, you know, how do I get this? How do I get this um, more, uh, more traction on this? Not because... I was in any way worried about the content, but because mm -hmm. there is definitely a science to doing that and mm -hmm. I'm not decrying that. But even I wouldn't have come to you earlier in the piece because I was busy creating something that I felt might be useful. So the two-minute question is a very good example of something. The two-minute question is where I send a question to my podcast guests on, uh, on video and I ask them for a video reply Mm. And it was only after we'd done 30 or 40 of these that I came and said, well, how, you know, Faye, what do you think? Uh, mm. Do you think this is worth is spreading the word on this? But I was very happy that those people who I had worked with on that project were interested enough to keep coming back. And I knew I had something when every time I sent a question, people were replying. Yeah. Somebody sometimes you know, sometimes half a dozen people would reply. So I knew that this was resonating. And I think that's the critical thing. It's not 
how you get things out or where you get things out, but the fact that you're producing consistently and you believe in your heart that it's mm-hmm. something worth doing. If it's worth, worth doing, it's worth doing for its own reward. And the money is neither here nor there. It may or may not come. Mm-hmm. But when you go to bed at night, you feel, I've done something. I've done something useful. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, sometimes it's hard for people who, and I didn't realize there are a lot of people who are still thinking about starting out contemplating. And I, you know, that's one way of, you know, through these podcasts, um, these live interviews to get the message out there. If you're thinking, if you're contemplating, uh, there is absolutely something meaningful in what you're going to create. Like what you're creating now, maybe you put it away, you set it aside. It's a recording on your phone, in your iCloud that's never seen the light of day. There mm-hmm. is value in that. And mm-hmm. by the way, what I what I mean is perhaps the camera angle wasn't perfect. Lighting was a little crappy and you stuttered a little bit. That's all fine because only you care about that as much as as you do, right? It's like this pimple on our face and I'd be like, oh, it's the end of the world. The whole world's going to see it, and they don't care. And so I think once we get over the, the hump of thinking that it needs to be perfect, uh, you are going to help other people. So the way that I kind of coach and kind of help my clients is thinking by not putting these things out there, you're kind of in a way indebted to people who are there to learn. They're desperate. That one video could reach the people of, you know, someone you can help today, tomorrow. And so much of your content, Moyes, and as well as mine, as much as I try to do on on YouTube, is evergreen. And so even if people don't acknowledge it today, tomorrow, next week, they will come back to you. And they will come back to you from all over the world with all kinds of accents, which is something I I absolutely love. The other thing I would say to people is don't give up your day job if you're creative, right? They often say, oh, I'm going to give this up and I'm going to become a YouTuber or I'm going to become a journal uh, owner or whatever other thing they dreamt up. Don't do that. I think it is critical not to be needy when you're putting content out. If you're needy, you're going to lose a whole lot of interest from a whole lot of people because that scares people. Even if in being needy, you're actually saying this is worth something. If you go to them with an ask, you're going to find that they're going to run away because you scare them off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the money situation, absolutely true. Uh, for me, I was just talking about this yesterday. I'm pretty conservative in terms of, you know, being this immigrant mentality. I admit I have it. Like there's always, I for years, not until kind of recently, meaning when I started my entrepreneurial journey, I actually felt more at ease. I was standing on solid ground. Before that, I felt like, oh, they're going to take, I'm never going to have the green card or they will take it away and they can do anything. They can pay me half the salary. And I still have to say, this is all very, very real. So for me to accumulate the money, and by the way, if you're in the US or elsewhere, 401k, I'm telling you, even if I putting away $200 a month, it became, and I stopped looking and I didn't touch that money. Um, from age 22 to age 31, when I started Face World LLC, that money became significant. I was shocked to see the amount that I was thinking, oh, you know, worst case scenario, I guess I don't have to find a client for the next year and a half to two years. And that was huge. Um, mm. So not having that pressure on you, or just so somebody tells you, you should have six months worth of saving. Well, that is kind of irrelevant. And that number has a lot to do with whether you're single, you have a family of four children, um, so we got to be realistic. In a way, I think also, Moyes, I want to kind of hear you say that it's like 
once we have some sort of financial backings, which we create financial freedom, then we can really do more with our creative endeavors without having it to be our lifeline. Yeah. You need to be able to pay the basic bills. And then it's not that expensive. If you live in a modest way, it's not that expensive. Mm -hmm. Then you can be creative. You cannot be creative when you're hungry or when you're worried or when you're constantly looking for the next dollar or you think you're a failure because you're not a multimillionaire uh, a year after starting your YouTube channel. That's a problem. <laughs> that is such a problem. My goodness. And, and uh um, I, I think that just, how do you feel like, Moise, I feel like there's so much noise still out there. And I know for a fact that people will, in a heartbeat, most people um, will go to these huge YouTubers with 8, 10 million subscribers. Like they're doing something right. Let me definitely buy their course, join their mastermind. So maybe I will get my, they got 10 million. Maybe I'll have my 1 million learning subscribers learning from them. But oftentimes the opposite is true. Um, all these kind of things, uh, title links, uh, uh, kind of keywords, triggering you to click. Um, and you know, we're and then Seth often says, when you see something like that, you know, the alarm goes off. Don't click on it because then you're going to just be fed into this algorithm even more. Um, how do you? stop yourself or nurture yourself to 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 choose the information you want to consume. And I guess another way to say, where where do you get most of your information, whether it's on medicine or creativity, to kind of stay level-headed? Yeah. I would say something quite radical, and that is that I don't look for that kind of information. Mm -hmm. So because I've been doing this for a while, I'm constantly meeting really interesting people with interesting ideas. And that's where I go for the information that I want. You know, so I've got a ton of people that I, that I work with, that I interview, that, I, that send me papers. Or if I'm doing a project, if I'm going to do research, I go to a reputable place to do that research, whether it's, you know, PubMed or whether it's Google Scholar or somewhere where I know that I can get that information. I would not do clickbait stuff. I would avoid Instagram, mm -hmm. avoid Twitter, avoid mm -hmm. uh, Facebook. I don't have a Facebook account for that very reason. Mm -hmm. I don't want the algorithms to somehow contaminate my thinking. Yeah, I you know it's so interesting that we are. I literally said that the exact same thing yesterday on um, on another podcast that I also kind of in a lazy way, I seek information from my friends. Um, I have friends who are doctors, um, digital marketers through all walks of life. So uh, for me, I often, you know, either by following them or even just ask them straight up. So that's maybe a tip for people who are watching um, now or later that you can actually talk to your trusted mentors and, you know, go to them and still have, it's important to also think independently eventually. But when you do have a question, um, you know, I, I often go to them and I'm so, so grateful. You know, I think about my mentor, Dory Clark in New York. I think about Chris Voss. And, you know, Sarah Cooper, but so many, these are some of the known names, but there's, I interviewed well over, I think 150 people on my podcast. And I see all of them, regardless of their origin, their, their age, you know, somebody as young as 17 to teach me a ton. So mm -hmm. um, that is so meaningful. I realized one thing though, uh, that really, uh, I know we're coming up on the hour here, but I, I noticed that uh, one thing we talked about last time is that you have... A kind of an unusual name. And that makes 
you very memorable. So could you, you're based in Australia now. Could you tell us maybe your upbringing, um, why you have this accent, where, where you actually grew up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, the, the <laughs> I really, I guess I would think of myself very much as a product of our time. So I have uh, Indian origins. So I was, my grandparents were placed were from a place called Jamnagar, which is in the northern part of India. I've never, I've been to India to, to do a talk, but I've never actually been there in, in any other capacity. They were brought to East Africa uh, by the, in the British Raj in order to open up the trade routes for, for the empire. So I, I my, my father and my, my parents and my, myself were born in a place called Nairobi, which is in Kenya. Uh, I spent the first 11 years of my life there. And then because of the rising nationalism in, in Africa generally, it was felt that it would be better for us to get an education overseas. So we moved to, to Ireland, as it happens, uh, the only country that would take migrants at the time who were, who, uh, who were not, uh, you know, who, who were, were migrating other than for... Uh, as refugees mm -hmm. and so I was raised in the Republic of Ireland which is why I have this interesting accent <laughs> and then I did my training there my medical training there then I did my postgraduate training in Scotland so there'll be some Scottishisms come out there <laughs> then I did wow. a lot of my, my my MD I did in my PhD my MD in England and then I've lived in Australia since 2005 Wow. What so, a journey. How, how many <laughs> languages do you speak other than English? Do you remember your... Any? Well, I understand probably about eight languages. Uh, enough what? to... No, no, I don't actually speak those languages because I haven't practiced speaking them. I've been speaking Gujarati more recently because one of my favorite restaurants uh, has a Gujarati waiter and I love going in there <laughs> speaking uh, to him in Gujarati. <laughs> but uh, all up, probably... I probably have eight languages somewhere swirling about my brain. So I was mm -hmm. taught German at school, then I did French in high school, then I did a uh, smattering of Irish, and then I have, some people say I speak English, sort of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then there are, and then there are all the Indian languages. I watch a lot of Hindi films, so I understand Hindi, and then there's Gujarati, and I have a smattering of Punjabi, and so on, so, and so it goes. Swahili was the first language I ever spoke. Wow. And is your first and last name considered, are, are they of Indian origin or something other than They are that? interesting because they're, they're not traditionally Indian names. Mm. So I think Moyes is actually an Egyptian name. How yeah. I, I came to have the name Moyes is probably because there's some Muslim influence in the family. Mm -hmm. And Jiwa is, wasn't my grandfather's surname. That was his first name. And the tradition there was that you took your father's first name as your surname. So that's how we ended up a clan of Jiwas. And I think there are hundreds of us somewhere in the world. That's so funny. And what um, growing up, and since you were 11, you traveled to different places. And I think it was quite a, maybe perhaps a cultural shock, but um, what was it like in the beginning? Did you get used to eventually? I guess my question really is, what's so you're kind of such a hodgepodge of culturals to you, I mean, did it confuse you at some time uh, at one point, or did it delight you most of most of the time? What was it like to be you? 
Um, I, I think that's a, a good question. So I would consider myself, and I still consider myself Irish in the fundamental ways, in the sense that my my cultural baggage, as it were, is Irish. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of Irish influence in how I think the people who influenced me in my formative years, in my mm-hmm. teens and in my 20s, were Irish. And mm-hmm. I feel very much at home when I'm in among my Irish friends. In other ways, I'm very much Indian because I like Indian food, I enjoy Indian music, I enjoy Indian culture. So there's the East and the West that's mixed in there somehow. But of course, at the end of the day, I am now an Australian. And if we go to a football match or a cricket match or to a swimming carnival, I will be shouting for Australia. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. And it's it's so, I feel like part of what I'm trying to do with my podcast, with my YouTube channel, I think having me or giving myself the chance to be speaking, to have a point of view, trying to be a mentor to other people. Um, and while I still feel like I'm I'm always learning the language, I've been here for 21 years. Um, so I encourage, no matter your origin or skin color, if you're watching this, I would love to encourage you to connect with people who will perhaps look or sound nothing like you. And it's just tremendous amount of joy having different professions. Like personally, I find, I don't find it super fun to talk to say a hundred other digital marketers because I come from that um, origin uh, or training. So yeah, I guess that that would be a main message, but Moy, it's just been yeah, so I, I reson- Oh, so please. I completely yeah. resonate with that because mm-hmm. it, it is part of being creative as well. And I think that's where the creativity also comes from. It's when you mix those things, when you realize that there's something of value that you could learn from somebody who, who doesn't look like you, sound like you, think like you, mm-hmm. or even work in the same area as you. And I think that's where you get real value in, you bring that value back into your place of work and in, in the work that you do, and it makes it so much more powerful. Yeah, I, absolutely. I feel like the wilder you go, like the farther you can go with the people you meet and the skill sets that you perhaps don't possess, more creativity, more sparks, and more differentiators you're going to see in, you know, in your business. You're going to be more differentiated for sure. There's so much cross-pollination happening in our line of work, no matter what. And and I, I really admire people, especially in the medical profession, to pay attention to different cultural needs and to not look down on them or trying to eliminate them to say, you know, I, I love it. I, I have doctors, primary doctors greet me in Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, which is very helpful for my mom because who's, you know, her English is very limited. Um, and to talk about the fact that they've traveled to certain places to try to make that connection. So, Oh, this is so good. Are there any questions that I haven't asked and then you would like to speak to or, you know, to share with us? I think you asked me about the course that we were developing and uh, you you asked me separately before, was it a secret? It's not a secret at all. It's very much out there. Mm-hmm. The course is a course in clinical confidence and it speaks to some extent to what we've been talking about for the last hour or so. And that is, I feel very much that we do not prepare doctors who are ready for the real world. Mm-hmm. We we take people who are very, very bright, who've been very 
um, focused on their academic achievements and other things in order to get into med school. And then we cram their heads with lots and lots of scientific know-how, which we then go and put into, we ask them to regurgitate at exams. The course that we've developed, the course in clinical confidence, is an attempt to deal with that. So what we do is we get them to imagine what it's going to be like when they have a bad day, a really bad day. They've lost a credit card or, as you say, they've got a pimple on their nose or they've got a painful knee or the police are waiting to interview them because the, the last patient they saw died unexpectedly, whatever it happens mm. to be. Mm. And then separately, we have them sitting with a patient who's got real needs, who's concerned about some minor thing where they think they've got a serious illness. And then we allow them to video themselves, uh, the two, the doctor and the patient. They're working together. They're often medical students. They're acting out their roles without reference to each other, not knowing what the other was going to present to that uh, conversation. And bring, produce, uh, sorry, present in that conversation. And when we video them, we give them a chance to see what it's like, how they leak that discomfort. The doctor leaks that discomfort as they are talking to that patient and to learn from that experience. Because at the end of the day, for many of us doctors, things happen which contaminate our relationship with our patients. And this is an attempt to teach that in that, in that safe environment. And where can people learn more about this? I hope it's maybe in the description below. It's one of the links you shared with me, perhaps? Uh, it isn't yet. So we're currently uh, putting these into specific, putting the course, it's an online course mm -hmm. with 400 scenarios that uh, the, the students working in pairs can work through. We mm -hmm. put these to medical schools. Georgetown University is one of the ones that is currently using this. We're using this at my own university. And we are putting it to several others. We're also looking for a partner that might have some tangential relationship with medical students, whether that's a financial organization or an insurance company or whatever, a medical insurance company, litigation insurance company. And we're hoping that that relationship will then take this into all medical schools in this part of the world in Australia. But ultimately, the goal is... Kimberly Warner is the other person involved. She's a film director. Mm. The course is directed, the course is, uh, is, is actually in honor of her father, who was a cardiologist, who was this wonderful doctor, oh, uh, David Warner. Yeah. And we're hoping that this will become his legacy into the world. Oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that I interviewed Kimberly two days ago on Friday. I didn't realize mm. her dad was a cardiologist. Yeah. Um, I, I do remember he passed away when she was young. Um, wow, this is incredible. Actually, uh, since you talked you talked about it briefly, but for people who are watching this right now or later, what are some types of help, perhaps uh, you know connections um, that you know we can provide you with um, or, or assistance, whatever that may be? If you could give us a sense. I think if you enjoy have enjoyed this conversation and you'd like to learn more about the whole philosophy of doctors doing something small in order to improve outcomes in healthcare, then this, uh, then you know, hop onto our YouTube channel, come and visit us at the Journal of Health Design. If that's something you enjoy, if that's something that you would find of value, the best that you can do for us 
is to hop on there, join us, join the conversation, tell your friends about it for no other reason other than that this might make a difference to somebody out there in the world. That's what they can do for us. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's very generous. So thank you so much, Moyes. It's been uh, such a pleasure. I feel like we covered so much in this one-hour conversation and really look forward to learning next steps. And I love checking in with all my guests since seven years ago, just to see what people are up to. And maybe we have some of the follow-up conversations. Maybe we collaborate on a short video uh, for my YouTube channel, but we'll take it from there. Thanks again so much for being here with no, me. It's been an absolute joy speaking with you, Faye. You're very generous and kind soul. This episode of the Face World podcast is brought to you by Face World LLC, our marketing service agency created for independent creators and businesses. We offer website development, video production, marketing mentorship to people who want to tell better stories, level up, and create a profitable brand. Face World podcast team are chief editor and producer Herman Ceballos, associate producer Adam Leffert, social media and content manager Rose DeLeon, transcript editor Alina Ahmidova, and lastly, myself, the creator and host of Phase World. Thank you so much for listening.